Are you an overwhelmed SaaS founder ready to make the leap from leading a team to leading an organization? Join us each week as we refill your think tank with actionable tips and strategies from great business minds you know and those you don't know yet. This is SaaS Fuel with your host, five-time entrepreneur, SaaS founder, and globetrotting adventurer, Jeff Maines. Welcome back to the Sassfield Podcast, where our listeners are known to put a little drop of super glue in their earbuds before they begin listening to each episode, because they don't want to miss one. I'm your host, Jeff Maines. I help B2B SaaS founders like you scale and exit on your terms and love creating a business and serving clients all along the way while you do it. Well, speaking of not missing something important, our guest today is the founder of a communication SaaS platform that helps people not miss important events in their lives, like court dates. The idea is brilliant, multilingual, and execution is exceptional. It's a tool that's super helpful to avoid, we'll say, unnecessary legal complications. Now, most of our listeners know that there are three constants in life, death, taxes, and software bugs showing up where you least expect them. But, you know, fear not, in this ever-evolving landscape of code and commerce, there is still opportunity at every turn, and that's pretty fun, too. The more I do this, the more I realize that there is a SaaS solution for literally every problem that someone can think of. Savvy business people know that staying ahead of the curve is a key to success, and with the right tools in your toolbox, you can be absolutely unstoppable. From customer relationship management to supply chain optimization and AI-generated content now, I mean, the possibilities are endless. 21st century entrepreneurs have to be visionaries. Go back, say, 100 years. When Henry Ford designed the Model T, it wasn't just an improvement on the Model S or an improvement on their biggest success to date, the Model N, before that. It was an improvement on the horse and buggy, but it was made affordable by the invention of the assembly line. And Henry had to be a real visionary to pull that off, just like I think today's modern entrepreneurs do. Uh, Following the Model T was the Model A. And, And I know A comes after T, right? That was just supposed to be Model U you would think, right? But no, Model A. And that was because A was such a revolutionary upgrade from the current Model T that Ford just wanted to start over because it was all new. It was so different. It's a brilliant marketer. But I think the SaaS landscape changes like that too. It changes so fast. It's like the new Model T is suddenly old and it's upstaged with the new Model A every quarter, every month. And sometimes it feels like maybe even every week, you know? Vision and creativity can't come from AI, at least not yet. And I would argue probably never. I mean, it certainly helps and can provide prompts and ideas and it's something you know to look at and use. But vision, true vision, comes from founders like you. So keep iterating, keep making new things so that T isn't good enough anymore. Make it such a leap forward that you have to rename it to A and start all over again because it's so revolutionary. The opportunity to displace old legacy solutions is all around us. The difference today, I think, is that legacy may be five years old, not 30 years old. Vision is more important now than ever. So see it, recognize it, dream it, and create it. This is your time. Today's episode is sponsored by SaaS Open. Join 1,000-plus SaaS leaders, get an inside look at the future of software, and spend some time with the people that are making it happen. There'll be five stages with valuable content delivered in short 20-minute segments, 
specifically built for SaaS founders, CMOs, heads of products, sales, and engineering. You know, the best way to predict the future is take some of that vision and create it. So come do that with us March 16th and 17th in New York City. I'll be there. I'm speaking. I would love to meet you. We're also hosting a dinner get together called We Love Bootstrappers while we're there. So get full details at sasopen.com. But come join us and hang out and spend some time with other creative founders just like you. In last week's episode, we talked with the SaaS CFO himself, Ben Murray. Ben will also be at SaaS Open. Be great to see him again. He provided great financial info and what and when we need to prepare to raise or exit and the latest insight into metrics that matter in 2023. It's a great episode. Our founder prior to that, a week ago today, was Drew Diagostino, founder and CEO of Crystal, a personality data platform that helps businesses understand their customers and build more emotionally intelligent sales teams. Very cool stuff. It's the kind of insight and communication that makes clients fall in love with your SaaS. If you missed either one of those, Ben or Drew, super glue your earbuds in and go binge them now. Don't miss out. Well, again, missing out. That is what today's episode is about. My guest this week, Ibrahim Assam, founder and CEO of eCourtDate, the multilingual communication platform for justice. It's a SaaS platform that makes our justice system more friendly, equitable, and efficient. You know, it's easy to forget or miss an appointment, and a court date is one of those really important appointments, right? Even a deadline for something silly like a traffic ticket can escalate into a legal nightmare if you don't follow the instructions, you don't show up on time, you don't do your thing. And Ibrahim saw a need and created an elegant solution to level the playing field. So welcome a warrior for justice, Ibrahim Assam. Well, hey, Ibrahim, welcome to SAS Fuel. Hi, Jeff. Thank you for having me. Well, tell us about eCourtDate.com. How did you come up with the idea? Well, I, I came up with the idea when uh, it's, it's really difficult. If, let's say, imagine you get a traffic ticket from the court. And just to be able to pay it or just knowing the steps if you want to challenge it or when the court date is. And if you miss that court date, you know, the, the consequences. And, and I had firsthand experience with that uh, when I was younger. And I worked with government users throughout my uh, career before eCorte. And, and I realized that local governments have a problem sometimes communicating with local uh, users. That happens a lot. Yeah, the systems are, are not user-friendly really at all, if there even are systems. If there are even are systems or if the systems are outdated using, you know, pre-digital uh, processes. Right. Then things take a lot longer, cost a lot longer, a lot more friction than, than necessary. And that's also on the government uh, part. You know, sometimes they're locked in, so to speak, with vendor lock-in that we would never accept as a as a regular citizen, if we're using our own Xbox or PlayStation or laptop or whatever, we're not going to have some kind of vendor lock-in that locks us into a 10-year or 20-year contract. Some of our local governments have been locked in because they signed at a time when there were less technology options. You know, they're using more outdated software than we have on some some tech that's on Mars. <laughs> it's, it's, it's crazy. Yeah, sad but true. And that happens a lot, get locked into to long-term contracts or something that, that somebody signed a long time ago. And uh, technology has advanced, but uh, has left the government behind. Unfortunately, that's the reality in a lot of, uh, a lot of cases. And, and, and others, not. You know, it's not always the government is, is the loser or the, the follower in, in technology. You know, sometimes they're sure. the leader and the developer. 
Yeah, that's really good. How did you get into the government space? I mean, that seems like a really tough nut to crack. It can be. I think the perspective and your your goals uh, as a business need to be are different. It's a different ball game. It's a different environment. Of course, if you're a large corporation, you can essentially create different divisions within your sure. company to serve uh, your government users. And there's plenty of large uh, enterprises that make make substantial revenue and substantial margins from from their government users. They're the ones that are locking the government in for years and years, right? Well, maybe the case, <laughs> but regardless, you can't say that it can't. You know, the the market doesn't exist, or the sure. uh, the potential for a sustainable, uh, profitable business doesn't exist. Well, if anybody can do it, an entrepreneur certainly can. Yes, agreed. Exactly. <laughs> and, and can do better, I hope. Oh, without a doubt. So bootstrapped entrepreneur, and which I absolutely love, that uh, you know built a, a great company. Uh, how did you get into the government space? How did you crack that nut? How were you able to, to get in and really differentiate yourself when there are you know, big players out there trying to keep, keep other ones out? I, I think... I think the traditional uh, approach for at least the software startups, uh, at least maybe not in, uh, unless you're Theranos, not in sectors that are uh, medical or, you know, high sensitivity or critical sectors. The approach is, you know, MVP, minimum viable product, build it fast, get feedback, iterate on that feedback, um, and essentially deliver a buggy or maybe not necessarily buggy, but a limited value product to your users and start from there. That doesn't work with government users. (laughs) And it creates a requirement where you essentially have to be ready before they even know they're ready for their particular feature. And so that you're seen as as a capable and reliable and if they integrate or if they use your product, then in a way you become an agent of the government and you need to have a certain level of reliability, usability, accessibility uh, that you can't take the minimum viable approach with. That's interesting. So how do you build a product and really go to market with a mature product? I wouldn't say you go to market with a mature product. And I wouldn't say our approach has not necessarily been the ideal approach. Of course, there's been there's been challenges. I haven't been able to... You know, we launched in uh, we launched the first production product Jan one, like midnight January or you know one a.m. <laughs> January first, twenty twenty, and uh, we had a, a more limited product in in, in twenty nineteen. With COVID, I haven't been able to A B test to identify whether our challenges have been aggravated or reduced or you know we have our own as everyone has had unique challenges throughout COVID. In term, that's when we were starting, you know, and and so our strategy then um, was to not go the MVP approach. Um, instead, we essentially went top level approach. We uh, checked, uh, you know, whenever a government agency uh, wants to procure new services, at least above a certain threshold. Usually that's about 10,000 in the U.S. for a local government agency. Sometimes it could be above 50,000. Above a certain threshold, uh, they have to do a public bid. Okay. Uh, of course, there's loopholes and exceptions and they can do sole source and there's, uh, that's, you know, where there's opportunity for complaints and, uh, of corruption. Um, but otherwise in general, it's, you know, they do a, 
public competitive bid where they offer anyone, any anyone who's at least minimally qualified. <laughs> the nice thing when when these RFPs are issued, actually, it depends on the government agency. They're not always well uh, scoped out and well defined. Happens a lot, but in many cases, <laughs> in many cases, they are, and it can provide you a good template for. Uh, what would be the minimum viable product for your customer? Okay. Not what would be the minimum viable product for your team as a, as a developer, because that does not necessarily always go hand in hand. Um, and so that's the approach we took. We, uh, we developed the first versions of our products for really the best or not necessarily the best. I'm not saying whoever is best, but, some of the biggest courts in the country. Okay. Um, and built it for their needs, built it for their requirements. And then after we successfully onboarded them and, and you know, delivered the solution that they needed, then we started it building a more self-service version for the smaller courts. I like that. Because you know if you can serve the, the bigger ones and have that name recognition that, uh, that a lot of the smaller ones are going to follow suit. Is that kind of the approach? Exactly. And as well as if you have the right architecture, the justice system in the United States, at least, is a quite a complicated, multi-layered network of independent and like just from an abstract technical perspective, not from a law perspective. It's 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 like this interconnected, interdependent network of nodes where each node can determine its own rules and, and capabilities and configurations. And has its own control on its own data for a certain period of time. It, it can be quite complicated. Um, even if you can say the ultimate product could theoretically be something simple, you know, the end result from uh, we're using a lot of different use cases, but essentially we just come down to a messaging application. But you have to send the right messages based on the right data um, and make sure the right information is delivered at the right time. And when you're doing that in a complicated network like the U.S. justice system is, uh, if you get the architecture right from the beginning, at least at a statewide level, because we're not working on federal level yet, at least at a statewide level, then you know you can get everything top down. Do you find yourself educating prospects, I mean, educating government on here's how it should work? So, you know, here's, here's the process that we've, we've developed and get them to adopt that? Or are they still kind of creating their own rules, how they want to do it, and then telling you, here's, here's what we want? You know, that's a challenge, I think, with any business. In order to, do you sell the horse? <laughs> do you sell the car? <laughs> right. Do you sell the car? What exactly are you selling? You know, I think, I think it was uh, who invented uh, Ford. Right, right, Henry Ford. The, you know, I think he had the famous quote on, uh, if, if I gave the customer what they wanted, I would have built a faster right, horse. Exactly. <laughs> and I think Steve Jobs is also, you know, famous with that type of approach of knowing what the customer wants. I think in our environment, the customer and the user is typically a bit more sophisticated. They may not necessarily know the workflow or the a particular approach, but I think in most cases they know the goal, uh, or they know the dream, uh, you know, the, the happy land, the heaven that they want to get to. They may not know exactly the range of possibilities within Happy Land, uh, but they know that it's not where they currently are, and they can tell you what their challenges are. In some cases, those challenges can ease is not necessarily an attribute. It's just 
it's feasibly possible to to address that challenge at least with a solution like ours. In those cases, if they see value, then you just use you become like a permanent uh, partner for them. And I do understand why you end up having those long term twenty year contracts by these legacy vendors. Sure, but I would just expect that the government customer continually puts pressure on the vendor to improve their product. So working with a lot of legacy technologies, how have you worked with them? And do you work with them? Do you work around them? Do you work through them? You know, what what types of scenarios have you experienced? Well, as part of the, our initial development, we actually put a lot of emphasis on being able to work with legacy systems. And so nowadays, if you're going to build a new software product, I mean, what first things you do is build an API and make it interoperable with other systems. Right. Uh, if not, that's you know the, the backbone of, of, of your system. Unfortunately, that wasn't the uh, best practice in, in, uh, in the 80s and the 90s and even in, you know even now it's not necessarily the best practice and if you want to be anti-competitive, you don't have to do it. Nobody's forcing you to. But our approach, we did do the API approach, and then we emphasize even more our file processing. So most of these legacy systems, they export some kind of file. They have some kind of capability to export data. Right. The old um, CSV. And so whether it's CSV <laughs> or there's some interesting formats that come out, but essentially it's, it's, you know, it's, it's exportable data. And we created a process that they can uh, use to essentially create you know, automated data feeds. Um, and so that's majority of our users either use that approach and, and some will do the real time API integrations. And so we really designed it so that essentially a case with a court is it could have your know, court dates, it could have your tickets, it could have your documents. And so we designed it to be as flexible and abstract as possible um, so that it can fit really all of these case management systems. Oh, that's smart. Having that that interoperability, whether it's an API or or whether it's a you know whatever type of flat file you know, they're producing, I think that's that's you know, it. It helps them. It also gives you good insight onto like the particular weaknesses that they have in terms of their own design, so that you can design a better architecture from the get go. <laughs> that's really smart. Yeah. So when you're you know pitching at the I guess at the state and the local level. Yeah, how quickly are those decisions made versus you know what you thought it would be in the the beginning and and what what has it actually been? You know, what has that experience been like? A really good question. What I thought it would be was maybe three to six month uh, typical sales cycle. What it really is is again maybe COVID is a different factor, but I, I don't think so anymore. Uh, it's more like twelve to fifteen months, at least from initial. First interaction. I, I think there's some sales and marketing strategists. I'm more on I'm on the technical side, but I, I think some say that you need like seven or eight touches. Right. And I and I think that's it's a bit more with government. You know, you're building the trust, you're building the credibility, you're and then you're showing the capability, and then it's a matter of pricing and bureaucracy, and and also in some cases, at least in the U.S. Um, and at least when you're working on a local level, they want to see that you have. Uh, other customers in your same state. So that can be a challenge when you're trying to enter a new state. Uh, you have to sweeten the deal in some way. Isn't that crazy? You can be working with the exact same type of court 10 miles away across the state line. That's not good enough. We want somebody that's, that's in our backyard because we're different, right? Exactly. 
And remember, in, in between states, I mean, there's some legal terminology like a foreign uh, foreign and extradition. You know, there's yeah. some terminology where the states kind of look at themselves <laughs> as different countries in a way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, thinking yeah. about it that way. And and it's understandable for a government uh, employee. You know, they're not a government, they're not a business owner. They don't have a stake uh, in the business. They're not going right. to get bonuses. They're not, I mean, maybe they might get bonuses, but they're not going to get some kind of dividends or something like that from the business. Um, it's risk mitigation. They don't, they, they don't have much upside um, other than keeping their job. Right. Maybe looking good for one day, you know, because you do a press release and maybe you, you, they go on a local news if it's a successful implementation. But if it's a failed implementation, which statistically, I think, I think the federal government had a statistic that was like 80-something percent, 82% of, uh, I may need to double-check that statistic, <laughs> but the majority of government software projects, at least federal ones, fail on their initial uh, budget and scope and goals. I think that's, that's um, probably pretty accurate. <laughs> Maybe 80% would be low because it, it is uh, really, really rough. Yeah, and they, you know, they could lose their job. Right. <laughs> you know, so. Yeah, the downside is big for them. The upside, yeah, making no decision. What are you going to do? Go to a different court? (laughs) Yeah, so it's not like they're they're worried about satisfaction. And the value is also, you know, typical B two B values. You know, saving money, making money, being better than your competitor. It's not the same with government. Might have a little uh, competition with a neighboring agency. And we are trying to, you know, use that energy in our own product by creating like comparison features. But uh, really, it's 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 about risk mitigation. It's about uh, addressing issues where you know they spend a lot of labor, a lot of time. Uh, you can't necessarily tell them about cost savings because. Cost savings is just going to go back into their general budget. And depending on the government agency, like for most courts, if they, they're seen as an expense on the general budget. So if they have, if they spend less money, it's not going to go back into the court's budget. Correct. It's going to go back to the main county's budget. Yeah. And if they don't spend it this year, then they don't get it next year. Yeah, exactly. It's crazy, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. Our tax dollars at work. Yeah. Our tax dollars at work. <laughs> So how have you solved that? Uh, you know, multi-channel, multi-language. I know that's something that's a challenge for a lot of courts is, uh, you know, particularly multi-language. Multi, uh, multi-language is a, is a difficulty. You know, a lot of local courts, um, especially in, it, it really doesn't matter what part of the country, whether it's urban or, or rural, you'd be surprised there's diverse communities. Um, you may not necessarily be surprised, but there's diverse communities all over the country. Sure. And it's historically been like that. You know, I, was working with a a court recent a new court recently in the state of Washington. And I was just re- researching the the as part of our uh, profile the uh, language diversity in that particular city. It's one of the last gold mining cities, and they had hundreds of of languages in the eighteen hundreds. Wow! Because they had uh, indigenous, they had dozens of different languages from uh, from Europe. They had people coming from Africa. They had people coming from Asia. It's it's always been a diverse uh, diverse country, at least in terms of the population. And uh, if you're a user of a court, 
you know, it's not dependent on, or if you're a user of government services, at least if the government services are not specific to citizens, um, you know, like if you're going to get arrested, you're going to get arrested essentially through the same process. If you're an illegal, you may get deported in a separate process, but at least initially, everybody's treated as uh, as an equal user. And in in those cases, you know, you should you should be able to have. Um, you know, at least routine cases, you should be able to get the communication in your preferred language, you know, because it, it saves a lot of costs. Uh, interpreters, the courts spend more than $38 billion a year just on interpreter budgets. Wow. And that's our tax dollars at, at work. There's no reason why we can't translate routine forms and documents and steps and procedures into at least a few common languages. Sure, that makes sense. I don't know if we have 1,800 languages, but uh, certainly there, there are a lot of commonalities. And you could probably cover 95% with just doing a handful. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we do support uh, the top 22 languages and, and, and some, some of our, uh, some of our courts, they, they want to support, um, you know, more obscure languages or not necessarily obscure, but less common. Sure. And that's just because in their particular community, it's, it's highly common. And, and sometimes maybe unfortunately, New immigrant communities sometimes have a higher uh, interaction rate with the with the local government, and <laughs> there's no reason why uh, we can't you know spend pennies to translate and literally save uh, dollars on the back end in terms of putting more human resources and people to 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 avoid uh, issues that could have been avoided from miscommunication. No, that makes sense. Communication is so important. So you're, you're, you know, what you're doing is is super helpful to the community and to the, the governments as well. Absolutely. So tell me about the, the portal and, uh, and how that is rolled out. Uh, the portal, actually, we, everything that we do in terms of our product is, is meant to be accessible, uh, accessible in terms of when you're speaking of like a website or an app, right. it means you know, someone is uh, uh, hard of hearing or has limited vision. Uh, that it's still accessible to, they don't need any kind of special software. Um, they don't need any kind of special training. Uh, they don't need to download anything. And so we make it as ease of use as possible, uh, multilingual, mobile friendly. It works on every device, whether you're going to open it on your phone or, or a big, you know, big giant monitor and knows who you are. You get direct access if you need to speak with somebody or communicate with somebody at the court. It gives you any of your associated uh, events. You can, you know, like your upcoming court dates, you can add them onto your calendar, any needed documents. Everything is all built into that portal without having to deal with another app that you install. And it, it's only limited time. And so once you're done, you're done. You close it out and it's, and, and it's finished. So what's been something that, that you've rolled out, a new feature or, or function that you, you really didn't envision in the beginning, but the product has grown to include that? Scheduling. <laughs> scheduling. Interesting. Um, absolutely. We're doing all kinds of scheduling. So the ability to do, to reschedule your court date, the uh, ability for attorneys to schedule uh, sessions for their, for their own clients, um, rescheduling, canceling options. You know, sometimes they may send you a court date. Um, they, the court schedules it on their end, but then they give you limited options to reschedule. Um, so we've been doing a lot of uh, uh, scheduling capabilities, um, also around drug testing, random scheduling, you know, bulk scheduling, that kind of thing. And you know, our product has we started with 
text messaging, um, text messaging and email. Of course, my vision from the beginning has always been a, a full unified communication platform. Um, so now we have, you know, we have built in video meetings. We have built in chat. You can send a letter or a postcard over US mail over the product. One of our next big features is going to be self pay where you can, um, right as it is, we probably notify. Uh, maybe a 1.1, 1.2 million dollars worth of payment notifications every month. Okay. You know, and that's continually growing. We only started that in the beginning of this year. So you get a, you know, you get a link that ends up redirecting you automatically to the court's payment portal if they have one. If you've ever paid a ticket online, it's a horrible experience in general. (laughs) They usually charge you a pretty high convenience fee or some kind of processing fee. Um, sometimes that could be egregious depending on the particular vendor that the court chose. Um, so that's, you know, that's another option that we're adding to be able to do the self pay and also be able to choose, uh, payment plans. You know, so if the court allows it, you say that you're, you know, limited, uh, lower income, you may have to pop in a few, uh, financial income, uh, survey type questions. And then that'll give you a, the no interest, no added fee uh, payment plan option to pay off the the ticket or any other fines. Yeah, that's really really helpful. Yeah, I guess the the feature that we weren't really expecting before eCourt Day, I was very much a services and a consulting. Uh, I had a web web development agency. I worked with all kinds of uh, customers, of course, uh, small medium business enterprise customers. I like. I, I also worked with a lot of government customers, United Nations, uh, also defense contractors. And of course, I, I naturally gravitated and ended up liking working with the government users more. I found more value and impact from that. And I think that uh, the feature that I wasn't expecting was to build in a service. I very much love having a product and delivering a product that can be used by theoretically an unlimited number of people. I, previously hated delivering services and working on an hourly basis, you know, as a freelancer for people. And I really wanted to get away from that as my own, in terms of my own professional development. Um, but we did add a service feature, so to speak, because you can, you can automatically translate your, uh, your content, but we also have an option to translate, um, to request a human translation. But then, you know, that's from our own team. So that's not something I'm doing personally. So I'm happy to build that in. <laughs> Oh, that, that's a great idea, especially if, if governments are spending billions of dollars a year on that. Uh, you know, why not? Yeah, I think that's going to be an interesting market. Uh, right now, it's not really intended. We don't have enough translators to be able to have like a super fast turnaround. You know, imagine if you're in the middle of a court session and you need a almost instant human translation. We're not we're not there yet in terms of the translation network. Um, we can guarantee essentially a 24 hour turnaround. Okay. But that, that's used for if they need to send a message or if they need to send a document. Um, we haven't figured out the ideal pricing for it. Um, so, so far, we've been offering it just built in, you know, ad hoc as needed. But I, I think that could be an interesting marketplace in the future for uh, local translations. So what motivates you as an entrepreneur? Uh, solving problems. <laughs> that's a good answer. No, just beating competition. <laughs> That's good. That's the only thing that matters. <laughs> <laughs> Beating somebody. Yeah. You know, whether it's competition or somebody that told you you can't do it, or whether it's yourself that told you you can't do it, um, or thought that you can't do it. Beating somebody or beating some 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 goal. 
So in, in building the the company and going after you know government, I know that you've got that experience in your background. So it wasn't just coming in cold, like no experience with government at all. Um, how did you decide whether to you know, go after funding or you know to bootstrap the company? I considered uh, t- taking on investments initially, uh, just from in terms of using it as a strategy to build a company. And I, I think taking an investment may make sense in a lot of cases, especially in cases where uh, it's capital. Uh, you know, uh, if you're going to build a new fusion reactor or a new plane or a new rocket ship, you need a lot of money. And maybe a similar concept for a lot of different startups. With, with software, depending on the use case, I think the budgets can be relatively more controlled. At least if you're more, if you have a technical background, you can define what you want, what you're going to build. You know, like if you're going to build a house, you never built a house before. You're not an architect. You have zero experience with construction. A house is going to probably cost you two to three or four times more than it would have somebody who has experience building houses. Sure. Um, and who has maybe a network of, of, of builders that they can rely on who, who, who he or she trusts. And, uh, you know, they can get things done and, and a lot quicker and a lot faster. So I think I had a natural advantage uh, for that, and I, I didn't see a need for investment. Secondly, you know, I was starting when the investment times were quite frothy. Maybe it's not, uh, maybe it's not like that anymore, or maybe it's died down a bit now. Uh, but that didn't seem. I'm not a fan of the build fast and the wild west and the gold rush and that type of mentality. I'm very much. You know, if I'm traveling, I'm very much a slow traveler. I'm not going to flash around Europe in two days. It may take me a few months for <laughs> the same concept of the business. Uh, you know, it, it takes time to build a product. It takes time to learn your users, um, to learn your market, to, to understand what you need. Sometimes an investment, I could say now, we have a better understanding of the market. Probably... Um, closer to, I don't think anybody's ever at 100% product market fit, but probably closer to that nirvana. And so I could probably take a, a, a certain amount of capital and put my financial hat on my rough calculations and say, okay, based on investing in this sales acquisition channel and this channel and this channel and combined with these features, I think we can translate this to you know X dollars in annual recurring revenue within six months. Um, and and have that based on our actual previous numbers. You could theoretically expand what's working or what's almost working, you know, with with capital. But I think if you take capital when you don't have something that's working or not, you're just not there yet. I think that poisons the 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 fruit, poisons the tree, so to speak, and whatever you're going to create is not. Like, how are you going to create something if you didn't actually talk to your users because you needed to build something that they <laughs> were going to pay you for? Right. <laughs> otherwise, you were done. Because when you have a million dollars sitting in the bank and you have zero users and you're an engineer, and we've seen it happen a million times, you end up building what you want. Right, right. Yeah, not something that you know, uh, has been proven in the market that uh, that the clients yeah, want to... Or if you're a salesperson, you chase some fancy sales sales objective uh and you know i'm not gonna name the 
particular founder, but I was speaking with a startup recently and, and they're working on a social network and, you know, great idea. And I, I'm sure they can find success on it. But they put this insurmountable goal of saying, we want 100,000, maybe even more, uh, minimum daily active users <laughs> wow. before we start trying to monetize this user base uh, with advertisements. I'm like, find something else, at least that you can do in the interim to create revenue. Because if you're not creating revenue almost from day one, then what are you doing? Right, right. It's a hobby, not a business. It's a nonprofit. <laughs> there you go, nonprofit. <laughs> yeah, there are way too many of those out there. I think maybe that's changing a little bit in just the, the mindset. Uh, but we'll see. Agreed. I, and I, I, I think that changes when it's lack of capital. So I think the reduction in, in easy capital is, is generally a good thing. Yeah, one of my favorite books is Creativity, Inc. by Ed Catmull. He was the co-founder of Pixar. And one of the things that he says in that book is that constraints breed creativity. And so it's having those constraints, not unlimited budgets that you can do ridiculous things with, but having those constraints forces you to be creative. And I think that's really true as an entrepreneur, especially bootstrapped. And you have to be creative. You have to be scrappy. You have to find ways to succeed, not just throw money at problems and hope they go away. Absolutely. And and you quickly find solutions. If you're on a ship and the ship is thinking, <laughs> yes. you're not talking about, hey, let's go build the second ship that's going to take us further. <laughs> you solve the problem. You plug the hole. You know? yeah. That, yeah, you plug the hole. And that, I, I think that's what a startup is. Um, and a lot of people get lost in the, uh, let me build another ship while my existing ship is sinking strategy. Yes, yes. Oh, that's really, really good. Uh, good thought there. Uh, great analogy. So what role have mentors played in your success? I'm not necessarily the nicest person interpersonally. I'm quite, you know, like focused on whatever I'm focused on at any, any given time. I'm not sure if I've had mentors uh, in the traditional concept or in the traditional sense. I guess I've had certain people that uh, I've always, uh, whether I knew them in person, in real life, uh, or just followed them, you know, in, in the world what, that that I've respected and and that I found inspiration from, whether or not it's something that's relevant to me. I think you, I think you can always find inspiration from people working in all kinds of uh, in all kinds of fields. Sometimes from surprising fields. Uh, I'm also excited because I'm. I recently started mentoring uh, uh, startups with Village Capital. I started a mentorship program there, and. I'm, mentoring a, a few startups that go through their uh, annual cohort cohort that's fantastic yeah and prior to equate i actually did uh not as a job but i volunteered uh, to do uh, coding workshops where i taught different groups on uh, you know just coding in general developing prototypes developing software that's so important i love that, that you're you're giving back in that uh, what have you learned from mentoring other people it's the real world experience that people are actually interested in and, and find value in. And I, I think a lot of times uh, people are accustomed to listening to other people who have credentials that were given to them by institutions because they checked different boxes and they didn't actually experience whatever it is that they're talking about or the, the field that they're in. They don't have real world experience from it. 
And I've been quite surprised, always feedback from different workshops that I've held of what people found valuable, things that I'd consider common sense. That's really, really good. (laughs) So if you could go back and tell yourself something, you know, back at the beginning when you started, what would that one thing be? Uh, Don't work as hard. Take a break. (laughs) Sleep more. (laughs) I like that. You can start a startup later. (laughs) Yeah. So why why would you say that? Why would you say work less, sleep more, you know, take more time? I think sometimes you're I think there's a certain breed of people that always want to start a business from their when they're young. And I was really quick to want to do that. And you know, I was always selling things and when I was growing up, I was finding different ways to to make money on my own. One of the first things I made was a phone card, you know, cuz Back in those days, with, I don't know if you remember with VoIP. Yes. You remember making phone calls with Skype? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so before Skype came out, uh, if you wanted to make a phone call to somebody, even long distance, not just outside of the country, you know, that, was, that can be quite expensive. Right. Uh, so I was making my own phone cards and, 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 and selling them to, to, to different people. And, and I think I was always just in a rush to, to get into business. I was in a rush to... Uh, start something and and if I'm going to do something, you know, essentially for the rest of my life, then I might as well take a break with me and her. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> yeah. So have you always been entrepreneurial that way? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Is that something that like yeah. were your parents entrepreneurial or is that something that's really unique to you? I'm not sure actually. My parents are not uh, entrepreneurial. My father is uh, more of a writer personality. I think. You know, I'm also technical, so with the, uh, being uh, an engineer, developer, I think there's a lot of correlations with authors. You know, whether fiction or, or nonfiction, with, and, and coders, I think there's a lot of similar parallels in terms of work and mental process. I think it's the same <laughs> brain, the same muscles. Maybe it's just different education. Oh, that's really interesting. And so, yeah, my uh, my parents are definitely not a. Uh, entrepreneurial mine either but you know it's just one of those things that i got the bug and i can't let it go i, I can't imagine doing anything yeah. else yeah they're quite confused actually <laughs> why i uh why i torture myself constantly and i and and i claim that you know i could get a job if i wanted to <laughs> <laughs> yeah but why would you want to right it's more fun to, to create one that's awesome Absolutely. Well, where can we find out more about you and about eCourtDate online? Uh, you can find more information on our website, eCourtDate.com. If you are a government agency interested in, a, in, in our product, we also provide uh, online uh, demos and uh, completely free of charge. You can also check us on LinkedIn, eCourtDate. I'm also active on LinkedIn under my own profile. Awesome. And we'll make sure and link all of those in the, the show notes. And Ibrahim, I really enjoyed our conversation today. It's great talking with you. Thank you, Jeff. I appreciate it. Thanks again to Ibrahim for coming on the show and sharing your journey and insight. Learn more about Ibrahim and eCourtDate at eCourtDate.com. As always, links, highlights, resources, full show notes are available at sasfuel.com. Subscribe or follow us while you're there. And everyone who subscribes this week will receive a get-out-of-jail-free card valid at any municipal court that's using eCourtDate. Yeah, that's one of those things. It's a must-have for anybody with a, a lead foot like me. Yeah, I'm not as bad as I used to be. <laughs> what? I'm not. 
I, I didn't say I was good. I'm just not as bad as I used to be. So I don't know if that applies to you as well. But I think we could all maybe use that a little bit. Join us on Thursday for our SaaS Fuel Expert Series, where I'll talk with Christopher Nelson, author of From No Dough to IPO. Christopher is an experienced technology executive to IPOs. He's a real estate investor and the principal and co-founder of Wealthward Capital, a real estate investment firm. Christopher teaches leaders how to achieve financial independence even beyond the exit. What do we do when we exit with that cash? Well, Christopher has some great insights for that. And our founder next week is the one and only Nathan Latka. Many of you know and love Nathan, founder of Heyo and now FounderPath, which provides insight metrics and millions of dollars in non-dilutive capital for SaaS founders. So be sure and check that out next week. And until then, enjoy the journey. Thanks for listening to SaaS Fuel. Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned, are available at sassfuel.com. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from these episodes, please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com slash sassfuel. We'll be sure to read these out on future episodes.